Well, good morning. I'm sure all of you men noticed this this weekend as you were out shopping for your wife's Christmas present. But you know, they always display diamonds uh, on a flat black background. Uh, you know, something that won't reflect all, all the, the, the highly intense light that they shine down on those gems to cause them to just sparkle so brilliantly. Um, the whole marketing idea behind that is it's, it's all about the contrast. You see, high contrast helps us see things distinctly and without distraction. Yeah. Think about it. Diamonds displayed on a mirror, they just they wouldn't stand out. But when all other reflective light is removed, man, they just dazzle. In our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli and his sons, they're the flat back black background. Uh, well, Hannah and Samuel, they're the diamonds. We're going to be looking at this morning this first passage that describes Samuel's life after Hannah left him there at the tabernacle at Shiloh. And as we look at it, we're going to see a stark contrast between uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who disobey the Lord and because of that are judged by the Lord. And in contrast to them, Hannah and Samuel, who obey the Lord, who worship the Lord, and because of it are blessed by the Lord. Well, let, let's get started Grab your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. 12 through 26 this morning. Will you do this? Will you stand? I'll read our passage. I encourage you to follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12. Here's what it says. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served the Lord's, served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him. And when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need 
and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that in, in the midst of this time, you'd teach us. You help us to, to understand what it is that you've recorded here for us and what it is that you want us to learn from it. And God, beyond that, I, I pray that you would grant us, uh, by the work of your spirit, the ability to be changed by it, for, for you to address these things in our hearts and our lives. God, make this time profitable. Work in the midst of it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, most of this passage is spent painting that flat black background, uh, detailing the, the sins of Eli and of his worthless sons. Uh, but I want, to notice, I want you to notice this. It's not all dark and dismal. Uh, this section of scripture, half of which we are going to take this morning and the other half next week, it is sandwiched by two verses, by 1 Samuel 2.11 and by 1 Samuel 3.1, both of which say basically the same thing, that the boy Samuel served the Lord there in Shiloh, there in Eli's presence. And there's our diamond. That, that's our bright hope that we're looking for. And Samuel, along with his mother Hannah, they provide all the sparkle in this passage. They're serving the Lord. They're honoring the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. It's good for us to see that. It's good for us to be reminded of that, especially in our day. You know, these days, you watch the news. It's depressing, isn't it? The world is full of wickedness and foolishness and sin. It can get depressing. But you and I, we need to remember that even though the landscape may be painted flat black, hey, that just increases the contrast when the Lord begins to shine through us. And think for a moment about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, there in verses 14 through 16. He says that if we will do everything, and the context there is doing everything that the Lord has commanded us, without grumbling and arguing, then we will be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Now that describes our world, doesn't it? A crooked and perverse generation. But notice this. Don't miss this. Among whom you will shine as stars in the world. You will shine like stars in the night sky. How? By holding firm to the word of life. By holding on to what God's word speaks to us. We will then 
sparkle like diamonds on a black velvet background. So, amidst this backdrop of wickedness that we're going to be reading about, have hope and keep your eyes open for the diamonds. Let's look at verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. And rendered literally from the Hebrew, verse 12 says that the, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial and that they did not know the Lord. And now scholars don't know exactly what it means to be a son of Belial, uh, but there's absolutely no doubt that it's not a good thing. Uh, Belial was a pagan deity and whenever someone in scripture is called a son of Belial, uh, they are someone who is being painted as being wicked and foolish and utterly worthless. Uh, their rebellion against God has made them a liability, even a danger, not only to themselves, but to all those around them. It's really what Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 is talking about. Uh, there it says, the one who walks with the wise will become wise. Okay, now that's good. But then it says, but a companion of fools. Now, notice this, not just the fool himself, but the companion, those who are with the fool will suffer harm. Now, <laughs> consider for a moment that what is said here is said about two men who grew up in the best of circumstances. They grew up in the tabernacle of God. They grew up as sons of the high priest, and yet they didn't know God. Oh, I'm sure they knew about him. I, I'm sure they knew all about God, but they didn't know him. And because of that, they didn't have any respect for him. You and I, we need to remember that it is entirely possible to go to church, to, to live in a home that uh, would classify itself as being a Christian home, uh, to know all sorts of things about God, without really coming to know God himself. We've got to remember that right understanding, good theology, does not necessarily guarantee right relationship with God. There's a difference between knowledge and choice. You see, understanding information about God without relationship with God that doesn't make someone godly. It makes them hypocritical. What we need is that right relationship, that submission to God. That's what changes us. Well, here's how Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were disrespecting the Lord. Look part with you, verse 13. When anyone offered a sacrifice, so people are bringing their, their sacrifices to worship the Lord to the tabernacle there at Shiloh, and it says the priest's servant, and that's actually probably talking about the brothers. Eli being the high priest, they were the servants uh, of the high priest. It might be talking about some servants who were employed by the brothers. Uh, but the servant would come with a fork and plunge it into the container and claim whatever the fork brought up. And this was how they treated everyone. So Hophni and Phinehas, understand this, uh, they were not content 
to receive the portion of the sacrifice that God had assigned to them. Understand, this is how it worked. When someone brought a sacrifice uh, to, to offer to the Lord, part of it would be burnt up on the fire, on the altar. That was the Lord's portion. Part of that sacrifice would go back with the worshiper. That would be their share. And a part of the sacrifice belonged to the priest. And the Lord had designated which parts were to belong to the priest. In Leviticus 7, 33 and 34, it says, the son of Aaron, and speaking of the priest, who presents the blood of the fellowship offering, the fat, that's the portion that God owned. They would have the right thigh as a portion. That's pretty specific, isn't it? And then the next verse, it talks about the breast as well and the thigh that they were assigned to the priest Aaron and to his sons. But that wasn't good enough for uh, for Hophni and Phineas. They chose instead to stick a fork in and, and grab whatever part it was that they wanted and claim that as theirs. Even worse, in verse 15, we read that even before the fat was burned. Now remember the fat that was God's portion. That was the actual sacrifice. That was the central thing of what this was all about. Before the fat was burned, they would say to the one sacrificing, give the priest meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the person would say to them, no, the, the fat must be burned. This is what it's all about. This needs to be taken care of. You can take what you want after that, but, but, but give my sacrifice to God. The servant would reply, no, no, give it to me now. And if you don't, I will take it by force. Eli's sons were, were taking this sacred moment of worship when people were coming to God for help, for comfort, for forgiveness, and they were taking that moment and absolutely defiling it, just destroying it. Why? So that they could get what they wanted. You know, that is not how it's supposed to be amongst God's people. You and I, when we come together, we are to be serving each other and and loving each other. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. There in verse 3, he tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. You and I, you and I, as we come together, we are to be more concerned about others than we are about ourselves. So what's that going to look like? Well, it'll look like us choosing to serve each other. Even, friends, even when that service becomes costly. Yeah, I think we're all pretty open to serving as long as it doesn't cost us anything. But the minute it becomes inconvenient, it becomes difficult, it becomes costly. Oh, that's when it becomes something that is truly a sacrifice, something that is actually an offering to the Lord. We're to serve each other. We're to care for each other. We're to be more focused upon caring for each other than we are upon feeling cared about by others. We're all very aware of that, aren't we? We're very aware of whether or not we feel cared for by others. But really where our focus should be 
is on how much we are caring for others ourselves. That stuff, it all gets played out in, in little stuff like choosing to park further away or giving the better seat to others or forgiving someone if they happen to seat, sit in your traditional spot here in the sanctuary. And it gets expressed through bigger things as well. Like when we will choose in a costly way to give of ourselves, of our time, our energy, or our money in order to meet the needs of others. You know what the brothers were doing here? It was no small thing in God's eyes. Now look at verse 17. Their sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Here's what it really comes down to. Hophni and Phinehas, they weren't serving God or his people. That's what they were supposed to be doing. But really, they were serving themselves. They had rejected God's authority over them. And they were instead, instead of following God's prescription, they were making up their own rules for the sacrifices in order to get what they wanted. Now, they maintained a religious facade. They continued to do the job of the priest, but they were putting their wants ahead of God's commands. In practice, in reality, their highest priority was satisfying their own craving. Yeah. The people's sacrifices to God, the, the burning of the fat, it didn't matter to them. They didn't care about that. All they cared about was getting what they wanted in the midst of the sacrifice. They disregarded the people, and even worse, they disregarded God himself. They made themselves their own ultimate authority. We do that too, don't we? Every time that I know what God wants me to do and I choose not to do it. Aren't I doing that very thing? Every time I know <laughs> that I shouldn't do something, but I do it anyway, aren't I just like them overruling God? Aren't I making myself my own ultimate authority? And the reality is this. When I choose to not serve God, to to live my life ignoring God's call upon my life, his authority over my life, uh, when I live as my own highest authority, aren't I merely serving? Aren't I becoming enslaved to my flesh? There's only one cure for that. The cure is to choose daily what Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, there in verses 24 and 25, he says this, those who belong to Jesus. And, and let me just note this. If you don't belong to Jesus, you won't be able to do this because it is only the power of the Holy Spirit working within our lives that gives us the ability to accomplish what Paul talks about here. He says, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm no longer living for self. It's I no longer view my life as my own to be expended 
after my own pursuits, but I now see my life as belonging to the Lord, uh, to be lived for his benefit, to be experienced under his authority. And, and how do we do that? Well, Paul continues. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is only going to happen when we choose to submit ourselves to not only God's commands, but to the prompting and the, uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit as well. And when we surrender our self-rule and instead choose to be ruled by God himself, both in obedience to his commands and in a sensitive following of the promptings of his spirit. Verse 18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence, a boy in a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him. And when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. So here amidst the, uh, the just uh, putrid corruption uh, at the tabernacle, here's little Samuel. Here's little Samuel being shaped by God, a God growing him and preparing him to, to serve in this role, uh, serving God's people and, and serving the Lord himself. And it's playing out even in the little things like Samuel wearing a linen ephod. So it, the linen ephod, that is a part of the priest's uniform. And here is Samuel, a child, wearing a, a little version of the ephod. So the ephod, it was like a, an apron that would be worn over the, uh, the clothing of the priest. And upon that ephod would be the breastplate that would be worn, uh, that would have the 12 gems implanted upon it that were representative of the 12 tribes. Well, what was that all about? Well, it was a reminder to the priest that as he went before the Lord, he was coming before the Lord on behalf of the people, the tribes of Israel. And as he turned from the Lord and went back to the people, he was going to the people as, as God's representative to speak to them his message. And so here, God is preparing Samuel. He, he, he's, he's teaching him that this is going to be his role, that he is going to have the job of being the one who will bring God's people into God's very presence and who will bring God's message to the people. And it's not just Samuel, it's his parents as well. Elkanah and Hannah, uh, they continue to worship the Lord and to provide for Samuel as he serves the Lord year after year. Look at verse 20. Eli would bless them, Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. He would pray, may the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one that she has given to the Lord. Now stop and think about that for a minute. You would not pray that for someone who had children, right? So there is a season here where Elkanah and Hannah, having left Samuel there at the tabernacle, they, they are continuing in life childless. They are continuing to live their life longing for that thing which they surrendered to God. 
Now, yes, eventually God did what they hoped. It says that she conceived and gave birth to, to three sons and two daughters. But, but think for a moment what a contrast this is. On one hand, you've got Hophni and Phinehas who are disobeying and dishonoring God. Why? Because they are going to take for themselves what it is that they want. But then here on the other side, you've got Elkanah and Hannah who are continuing to worship God. They have surrendered to the Lord the very thing that they wanted most. And yet the Lord has granted them a contentedness, a contentedness to wait on God, to wait on God's plan and God's timing. And instead of striving after that which they want most, they are looking to the Lord and waiting upon the Lord to provide it. And honestly, it makes me think of Psalm 37.4. Psalm 37.4 says this, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Now, that doesn't mean that God will just give you anything that you want. But really what it's talking about is that the heart that is submitted to God, the heart that truly delights in the Lord, desires the very things that God wants to give us. It brings, when we find our delight in the Lord, it brings our desires into alignment with that which God already has committed to give us. Well, back to that, that flat black background, verse 22. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing. I bet he did. How they were sleeping with the women who served at the tent of meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? Now, let's stop there for a moment. That is an entirely unhelpful response. I... Why? Who cares why? Why doesn't matter? It's not, it's not like there is it. Well, dad, here's the reason. Oh, well, in that case, go for it, boys. No, 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 no. There's never an extenuating circumstance that excuses sin. Eli continues. I've heard about your evil actions. Okay, so Eli's heard about it. He said, it's not good. It's, once again, though, and though, though Eli is responding to what his sons are doing, he is not responding as forcefully as he should have. Understand this. Eli is not pointing out sin to children who need to be taught about it. He is addressing grown men who are in conscious and unrepentant rebellion who simply need to be stopped. Eli says this. He warns his sons. You know, if you sin against another person, God can intercede for you. But if you sin against the Lord, who are you thinking is going to protect you from him? He warns them, hey, listen, God can protect you from the wrath of man. But there isn't anyone who can protect you from God's wrath. There's no way to hide from that. Makes me think early on in the book of Revelation where it talks about the judgment of God beginning, beginning to come down during the time of the tribulation. And it says that everyone, the rich, the poor, the powerful, the weak, they all hid themselves and, and they cried out to 
be shielded from the wrath of the Lamb. But there's no protection from that. I guess we should give Eli credit for speaking truth there. Uh, but honestly, he stopped far short of what he should have done. You see, Eli had a responsibility as a father. Even more so, he had a responsibility as the high priest. It was his duty no matter how unthinkably hard it would have been for him to do this, he had the duty to bring the punishment that had been established by God's word for defiling God's worship and for the sexual sin that his sons had involved themselves in. This may seem awful to us, but Hophni and Phinehas should have been taken outside the camp and they should have been stoned to death. Does that seem harsh? I bet it didn't seem harsh to the victims, to those women that they were abusing who were trying to serve God there at the entrance to the tabernacle. I bet it didn't seem harsh to those whose sacrifices were defiled time and time again by these two. You know what? I think we need to consider as well that God's law does not provide any clemency for unrepentant rebellion. There's no offering where there is a lack of repentance. I think part of the problem is that we don't, we don't understand just how seriously God takes sin. Do you realize that even today, the penalty for sin, for all sin, for any sin, is death. Sin still brings eternal separation from God. It's just that today those judgments are delayed until that day when we will stand before God. You and I, I think, especially these days, we talk often about the fact that the day is coming when God will bring this world to its end. It's not that we want to see life come to an end, but we want to see all those things that are, are so wrong be set right. We want to see all those things that are so unjust come to perfect justice. But do you realize that the only reason that you or I can can look toward that day with any sort of longing, uh, the only reason we can talk about it without uh, a, a absolutely mortal fear for our own destiny is the grace and mercy that we've received in Jesus. Please understand, God does not simply dismiss sin. That isn't how it works. If we think that God just blows off our sin, then we entirely misunderstand both the cross and our redemption. First uh, Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19 explains it like this. Uh, Peter says this, you were redeemed. Now think for a minute about what that word means. Redeemed, purchased, bought, paid for. Uh, Lou and I were watching a commercial last night um, about these magic little plastic cards that you can use to obtain absolutely everything you want. 
It's just, they're called credit cards. It's amazing. You can get anything. At, but that isn't how it works, is it? The bill comes due, right? Oh, if, if our world only realized that the bill was going to come due. You see, when something is redeemed, a price is paid for it. And the price to redeem us from the empty way of life that we inherited from our ancestors, that price was not paid with perishable things like silver or gold. What was our redemption paid for with? What was the price? What was the cost of our redemption? It was the precious blood of Christ. It was the very life of our Savior. It is only because Jesus took my sin upon the cross that I'm forgiven and cleansed, redeemed. It's because he became my advocate. And just a moment ago, Eli warned his sons, listen, you sin against God. There isn't anyone who can protect you from what's coming. Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 actually contradicts that. There is one who can and who was willing and who did intercede for us. John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm in need of redemption. And Jesus was able and he was willing and he has paid the price for my sin. He has become my advocate with the Father. It is only in Christ and it is only because of Christ that I am spared the righteous punishment of God for my sin. It's because of Jesus. The second reason that the sin of Phineas and Hophni is so despicable is that they did what they did while they were standing as representatives of God. And that was their whole job. They were to represent God to his people and they were to shepherd God's people into his very presence. But instead, Instead, well, they should have been doing that. Instead, they were using and abusing the situation and the position that God had given them to instead seek to satisfy their own lust. But God was not going to put up with that. He would deal with them and he would deal with them severely because they were misrepresenting him because they were hurting his people. And not only were Hophni and Phinehas in a position where they were supposed to be representing God, so are we, right? You and I. You and I as well. We also are those who are called to represent our Savior. And don't think, well, you know, I'm just opting out of that part of the program. I'm just, I'm not participating in that segment of this activity. And if you are in Christ 
In other words, if you are saved, then you are representing Christ, okay? Uh, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. I, I think you could very, very, uh, be very justified to drop the word all right into the middle of that sentence. We are all ambassadors of Christ. Any who are saved are representatives of Christ. Others around us see the Lord through us, through how we live. They hear his voice through the words that we speak. And they feel his love, or they don't, through the way that we interact with them. They sense his care for them, or they don't, as we interact with them. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we are to be imitators of God. You ever think about that? We, you and I, we're to be imitators. How in the world do I imitate God Almighty? Well, Paul says it's this way. As dearly loved children, we walk in love as Christ also loved us. In other words, that love that God has poured out into me that merciful, generous, kind love that he has poured out into me, I am then to pour that out onto others. I am to love them the way that Christ has loved me. You know what that's going to mean? Often that's going to mean loving without return. I remember years ago, um, had a really difficult um, co-worker uh, that I was just struggling with. And uh, one day, uh, driving in to the office, I remember praying, God, I, I just pray you give me an opportunity to love him today. Uh, I just give me an opportunity to love him, Lord. And uh, the Lord brought that opportunity in the middle of the day. And in the middle of that, I remember just going, are you kidding? What a jerk. I, this guy, I can't, oh my goodness. Did he really just say that to me? You see, what I meant to pray was, God, let me feel loved and appreciated by him today. But that is what I said. And God gave me what I asked for. He gave me an opportunity to love him, not an opportunity to feel loved by him. You see, God gave me an opportunity to love the way that he's loved me because he's loved me without return. And he loved me sacrificially. Look at the second half of that verse in Ephesians. And gave himself for us a sacrificial and a fragrant offering to God. Two things there. When I love others the way God has loved me, it's going to be a sacrifice. And sacrifices are costly. But it's also going to be an act of worship. It's also going to be an act of worship of the Lord. As I love those who are not returning love to me, God sees that. And to him, that is more beautiful than the, than the best worship song we could ever sing. The love and kindness and mercy that Christ has given to us, that is what we are called to give to others. Partway through verse 25, we read this. Uh, 
speaking of Hophni and Phinehas, but they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Now, that, that might throw you off a little bit. Taken out of context, removed from the, uh, the whole of the greater story of Scripture, it, it would be easy to, to maybe twist this into uh, meaning that we could blame God for these guys not repenting. Understand this. When you come to a passage that is difficult to understand, this, this will qualify, right? The way to understand it is to seek to understand it in light of those things that are clear. So those things that are difficult to understand, we try to understand in light of the things that are clear. So what's clear? Well, we know this. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Okay, let's put this over here. God is love. As 2 Peter 3, 9, he is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. Uh, how about this? Revelation 4, 8. Uh, we know that God is holy. In fact, so holy that for all of eternity, heaven will cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know from Deuteronomy 32, 4, that all of God's ways are justice. They're right. Okay, so God is loving. He doesn't want any to be destroyed. He is perfectly holy and all that he does is fair. So how do I understand what this says in the context of those concepts? Well, I would suggest that it, what we see here is, is, is much the same as what we see going on in Exodus 8, 9, and 10 with Pharaoh. Remember that? Uh, when Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then what do we read? And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, as, as Hophni and Phinehas were hardening their hearts against the Lord and choosing this path and choosing their sin, God let them stay hardened. He didn't prevent the concrete from setting up. In other, God didn't intervene to cause their hearts to be soft after they had made the choice to harden them against God. What this passage expresses is that God had already rightly judged them for the sin that they had committed. Does that seem unfair to you? I don't think it seemed fair to those that they were abusing there at the tabernacle. Uh, those that they had already committed sin against, God had judged them for that sin. It isn't that God was judging them for things they had not yet done. There was plenty that they had already done for God to reach the verdict of guilty. The verdict had been reached. The sentencing had been determined. They were merely awaiting the day of execution, <laughs> which for them was a very literal thing. You know, I think that's a, a good circumstance for us to ponder. Because you see, all who reject or who have not yet received the Lord's mercy because of their sin guilt, and everyone, everyone has sin guilt, as scripture tells us, for all have sinned. That, that, that we all who have rejected God's mercy stand already condemned. They are guilty and condemned already. And their sentence, and we know from Scripture, for the wages of sin is death, has already been determined. And it is only because of God's mercy that they now find themselves in that period in between the, 
the condemnation, the sentencing, and the execution of that judgment. I long for the Lord to come back. I, I so want the hurt and the pain that I see going on in this life to be swept away by perfect and absolute justice. And yet the Lord delays his coming. He delays his return. Why? Well, 2 Peter 3, 9, right? The Lord does not delay his promise, his promise to return. As some understand delay, he isn't just slow, but he is patient with you. Why? He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you have not yet confessed your sin to God, if you have not yet asked his forgiveness, if you have not yet surrendered yourself in the living of your life to the Savior, he's waiting. He is waiting with patience, but, but let me warn you, he will not wait forever. He's not going to force your hand. He won't force you to surrender to him, but he does invite you. He has paid the price of your redemption already. He stands with open arms, waiting for you to turn to him, to look to him, to put your trust, your faith in him, to surrender yourself to him. To leave the path of Phineas and Hophni and to become like the little child. That's how we come to him, <laughs> like little Samuel. Our life surrendered as a sacrifice to the king, looking, as it says in verse 26, for God to grow us in stature and in favor with himself and with others. putting ourselves in a place where we allow the Lord to shape and to change us, to determine our path, giving ourselves over to serving him instead of serving self, allowing his light to shine in us and through us and to reflect off of us that we might shine like stars in the night sky or like diamonds on a flat black background. Let's pray. Let's stand together. God, as we, we come to a time of worship, you, you are certainly worthy of all the worship we could ever give you because you have bought us. You have paid for us. You have purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus. God, I pray, I pray that each and every one of us would view ourselves as bought, purchased by God, belonging to him. God, like little Samuel, we would, we would live our lives in service of you. We would let you shape and form us to determine our path, we would turn away 
from the self-life and the pursuit of selfish desire. We would submit ourselves to your commands and to the prompting of your Holy Spirit that you, through that, would shape us. And Lord, that we would begin to shine brightly in the midst of this dark and darkening world. Work in us, Lord. Accomplish what, what you desire. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.